On May 5, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a discussion entitled, Can China Still Benefit from Earlier Experiences with Poverty Elimination? Can Other Countries? The conversation featured insights from Arthur Holcomb, Rajwali Fellow and Founder and President of the Poverty Alleviation Fund. China committed itself at the recent National People's Congress to the goal of eradicating residual extreme poverty by the end of 2020. Can it benefit from its own unprecedented previous successes with poverty reduction? Can it learn from the proven experience of other countries or NGOs with poverty alleviation? Dr. Holcomb believes that there is much that can be learned, but new approaches will bring the greatest benefits. The event was moderated by Ash Center Director Tony Seish. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Okay, thank you uh, very much uh, for coming, everyone. And um, one of the questions I get asked, I think, most frequently uh, when I'm teaching the course about China is what can other countries learn? Uh, particularly, uh, people are attracted by the uh, spectacular growth in recent years and, of course, attracted by the topic today of the dramatic reduction in poverty where China, as reform started, went from official figures from around 280 million within a few years to just 120 million. Although that was the largest drop in poverty, it all occurred before China introduced its official poverty alleviation program. So I think one of the questions that arises from that was how much <coughs> was it government and how much is, was it government simply getting out of the way? So there's a lot of interesting issues and questions, and we're really very, very lucky to have with us uh, Arthur Holcomb uh, to discuss these with us today. Arthur has worked extensively within the UNDP system. He's worked in East Africa. I think he also worked in Afghanistan, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And I got to know Arthur in the 90s when he was the resident representative for a UNDP in China. And in that time, he was able to observe very closely uh, what China was doing and doing effectively. And I can remember often complaining uh, to Arthur and him setting me straight and uh, talking about projects, for example. And he said, look, Tony, wherever you go in China, at least people have heard of the project and there is something going on. I won't say which countries, but he said, in certain countries I've worked, you go there, no one even knows there's supposedly a project in that area. So, Or cares. Or cares, which is the most <laughs> important thing. So what's well, really important in the sense that Arthur has a tremendous uh, comparative perspective on how development has worked, how it's played out in a range of different environments. And then after uh, finishing his work uh, with um, UNDP, he set up the Tibet Poverty Alleviation Fund, uh, which did pioneering work in uh, the Tibet Autonomous Region, including programs for microfinance, uh, but also others on uh, microentrepreneurship. And if he's not a sufficient glutton for punishment, he's now working in the Gaza Strip uh, quite extensively. So please join me in welcoming Arthur to talk about these issues with us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony. On uh, being uh, assigned from any other country in the world as a uh, person concerned with uh, economic development to China, one has to completely change gears. Uh, China is just plain different. 
It's different in terms of the kinds of projects that one runs into, the programs that one wants to support. Also, uh, the virtual scale of activities. Um, we, uh, I often thought when, when uh, coming into uh, Beijing in the early days, the very laudable but not attainable uh, goals of programs that uh, I saw, but then later, also, the great scale of programs was uh, um, important. And uh, then after that, uh, one also becomes uh, aware of the, um, the extent to which uh, government and uh, party uh, leaders uh, at different levels are all uh, in uh, close uh, consensus and cooperating closely in the implementation of programs. It's impressive how uh, a government, a party can so coalesce in coming into uh, a, uh, an area of great need and addressing a program on such an incredible scale. Uh, having said that, um, later um, spending more time at the local level, down in the uh, county uh, township level, even working in the in the villages, one then becomes aware that um, um, there's um, a big difference between what is to be done and how. And uh, locally, um, you find uh, very often uh, people with different motivations, uh, different uh, 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 means. Um, finding different ways of doing this. And it, it re always reminded me at the local level of the Chinese expression, the uh, sky is high and the emperor is a long way away. Having said that, um, things still get done. And uh, I will uh, proceed to uh, draw more on that uh, in a minute. The, uh, when Tony and I, uh, were assigned to uh, Beijing pretty much at the same time. One of the uh, earlier, uh, uh, pro one of the programs that we were most uh, uh, confronted with was the uh, Agenda 21 um, poverty reduction program, the 87 poverty reduction program concerned with uh, reduction of poverty among uh, 80 million people in seven years between 1984 and 1990. And uh, the program uh, was implemented over uh, six, seven years. It, uh, government uh, spent more than in dollar terms, well over uh, a billion dollars uh, implementing the program. And um, the, uh, what we are, uh, aware of now is that um, 20 years later, uh, Xi Jinping uh, all of a sudden has once again declared a program to uh, eliminate all absolute poverty. And um, taking, um, a, and, uh, and in terms of the nature of the program, it was going to be addressing uh, poverty reduction in some 1,200 uh, village areas, uh, administrative village areas. He had uh, made it uh, evident that as much as um, 10 million renminbi 
would be allocated uh, in each uh, administrative village each year over five years to accomplish the objectives. Um, quite uh, astounding and uh, impressive. Anyway, here we are now. Uh, the question really is, uh, um, can it be, is he going to be any more successful than uh, Li Peng earlier, 20 years earlier? Uh, th that is uh, something that I would like to uh, address, uh, looking at it primarily from the more local level. What I would like to do in this uh, presentation is uh, focus on uh, factors um, on, on factors that are contributing to uh, poverty reduction in uh, the rural areas. First of all, market, uh, household uh, market incentives coming from agricultural growth and increased uh, uh, agricultural pr production demand proved to be critical right from the early period of Deng Xiaoping and the 1978 uh, market reforms, clearly uh, market reforms uh, and rural economic growth were the responsible primarily for the uh, spectacular um, results that uh, Tony was referring to. Secondly, uh, expenditure uh, on education uh, has always proved to be important in uh, contributing to rural poverty reduction. And uh, thirdly, uh, expenditure on uh, rural infrastructure, uh, particularly focused at the regional uh, uh, level, contributing to uh, non-farm employment opportunities in the immediate area. And then also, uh, increasingly over time, uh, households uh, sending one member to uh, a more distant point in getting urban uh, uh, employment uh, was uh, an important factor as well. What I would like to do in this presentation is, uh, um, first of all, review a bit uh, poverty uh, reduction experience um, since uh, 1978. I then would like to review a few factors contributing to um, um, reduction uh, of, um, of um, poverty. What, what are the factors contributing or impeding uh, success? And then I'd, I'd re refer to some of our own uh, action research uh, in um, Tibetan areas, um, which uh, we found able to contribute to uh, increasing uh, income and food security. And then I would like to make uh, four or five recommendations to uh, Xi Jinping on what he might want to consider in uh, implementing his program successfully. I'd first like to just uh, make a, a comment about uh, what is uh, not um, poverty reduction. Uh, one of the more spectacular programs that um, the government uh, has launched, in this case, uh, Jiang Zemin in 1999, was the Western Development Strategy. This uh, uh, was a, a program of huge scale, which um, uh, 
was really focused on trying to develop uh, energy and other uh, mineral resources in the West, and uh, including programs uh, trying to bring the um, resources of the West to the East, the Eastern uh, um, provinces where they could be uh, fully exploited. Uh, it's a program that's been uh, tremendously uh, successful uh, in some respects over uh, 64 or 65 major projects by uh, 2008 and uh, a billion, 1.3 billion uh, renminbi spent on the program by uh, 2008. Uh, important, uh, but on the other hand, it was a program that uh, was more concerned with bringing uh, the benefits of Western resource resources to uh, more Eastern provinces where they could be properly um, and uh, quickly utilized. Um, it was not a program intended to really benefit local people in uh, the Western areas. And uh, one example of that is the, um, the spectacular train uh, uh, that was uh, constructed and finally finished in uh, 2005 from uh, uh, Qinghai and Gulmud uh, to Lhasa uh, over a five-year period. A picture of it here um, it, um, is, a, is a project that uh, uh, has, uh, is probably even today in the minds of senior um, party and government leaders probably one of the most uh, spectacular and uh, satisfying projects uh, ever built in, uh, or implemented in China. Um, it involved, um, in, as you can imagine, uh, running from all the way from Beijing uh, to Lhasa on the one hand, carrying passengers, carrying uh, goods, uh, consumer goods uh, to um, Tibet, Tibetan areas. Um, and um, on the other hand, it was also uh, intended to um, be a two-way traffic. Um, during the uh, period uh, between, uh, after about 2005, it was also um, taking out uh, coal, gas, and oil from uh, the Tibet Autonomous Region. Uh, it's, Railway is now being extended to uh, further to the west uh, to Shigatse, but on towards the Nepalese and Indian borders. It's also uh, very much envisaged that it will be carrying out, uh, in addition, uranium, uh, chromium, copper, rare earths, and other minerals that are needed uh, in the east. Uh, looking at it from a uh, construction standpoint, uh, it had about, seven, about 75,000 Chinese workers uh, building the, the uh, route. Um, um, a uh, job that was pretty much done by uh, Chinese subcontractors uh, coming in uh, with all the personnel needed, the planners, the engineers, the uh, um, workers. Um, Virtually no um, Tibetans were ever involved in anything above uh, shovel handle work. Uh, 
very limited, and uh, it was deeply resented uh, for that uh, reason by local Tibetan personnel. But nevertheless, um, successful in the broader sense of developing the West. And Zheng Zemin, when he initiated the program, he very much saw it as sort of opening up the West to uh, growth and development the way um, uh, um, Deng Xiaoping did earlier uh, with his program that basically led to uh, rapid growth and, um, in the East and uh, major um, poverty reduction at that time. Going back to uh, uh, look at the program uh, in the uh, earlier period, um, yeah. Uh, one can see that um, uh, there were um, uh, uh, various uh, ways to look at it. Um, uh, looking at it from the from the global perspective, uh, China, Brazil, and India. These three countries are probably worth uh, um, about 80 or 90 percent of uh, total uh, poverty reduction in the world. Um, and one can see here uh, the progress that was made in China during the eight, 1981 to 2005 period. Um, Brazil uh, with a very different approach, which I'll talk more about later, um, a conditional cash transfer uh, approach, um, uh, was able to um, reduce poverty and um, uh, India, uh, which again has a very different approach to poverty reduction, basically uh, focusing on labor-intensive part-time work with hand shovels, digging ditches, uh, repairing rural roads and the like. Uh, China's uh, very different approach uh, focused on rural growth and uh, market incentives um, was a very different approach which got far greater results. But I think what you'll notice in this uh, table is that uh, something else happened with uh, China's approach, and for that matter, some of the others. Um, with the course of time and, uh, in, and the emphasis upon continued growth, uh, there was a rising incidence of income inequality between the rural areas and the, and the uh, rural sector and the uh, urban sector. Um, and I'll get more into that as well. But what I would just say here is that um, the uh, increasing um, uh, uh, inequality uh, had the effect of slowing down the uh, potential for growth strategy to continue uh, reducing poverty in rural areas. Um, and one can see that um, in terms of um, the various programs of China over uh, the, the period up until the present. Um, in, uh, by, the, um, by 1984, poverty had been um, um, uh, reduced to um, about 125 million people. 
But what you can also see that is that over time, the impact of this growth-oriented strategy had less and less uh, impact as um, the numbers uh, lifted out of poverty um, were less and less as time uh, went on. And you can see here that um, the initial poverty uh, faced in uh, one, uh, 1994 in the, in the 8-7 program, uh, 80 million out of poverty in um, seven years reduced to uh, about 32 million during that period. Now, uh, Xi Jinping tells us that he's starting at, at 70 million, and uh, his uh, goal, as I mentioned, is to reduce it to zero. But a problem, and the question then is, what is uh, the government going to do as it is confronted by uh, increasing difficulty with its growth-oriented strategy? And uh, that's one of the major things I'd like to talk about today. When one uh, looks closely at uh, motivations uh, of uh, government personnel at lowest levels, uh, one senses conflicting priorities. Uh, from the uh, Beijing level, obviously, um, um, re um, elimination of uh, poor household uh, poverty is the number one strategy. But when you look at it from the standpoint of local government, they have other priorities. It's not that they disagree on what needs to be done, but it's a question in their minds as to how to go about it to some extent. They uh, will see far greater uh, priority for regional economic growth. Uh, for many of the programs, it was growth, it was uh, promoting of growth within a, um, a poor county. Um, um, more recently, uh, they've been uh, giving more consideration to uh, smaller areas to be the focus of attention. And in Xi Jinping's program, it's, he's talking about um, uh, administrative villages. Um, but on the, at the same time, uh, the, uh, county, the county governor and uh, township level officials, they're also very concerned about budget solvency. And uh, this means uh, taxes and fees and other sources of revenue that they can, gender, uh, can generate uh, from the uh, development uh, activities that can be uh, um, um, supported. And so regional economic growth is, is important to them. And this means channeling of development funds into uh, investments of existing uh, township and village enterprises, other uh, government enterprises. It means um, supporting more rich farmers, um, sources of uh, revenue that can be generated by the, um, the local government. Uh, beyond that, one does sense also uh, in the um, thinking of some of the county personnel um, a um, questioning as to how effective targeting of poor households really can be. Um, you can uh, give them money, but do they uh, have the capacity, do they have the education, the skills, the will to um, get themselves out of poverty in some way? 
there's doubt about that, which only uh, contributes to the feeling that uh, a better strategy is to rather uh, focus on regional economic growth and uh, slowly uh, reduce poverty, but also meet some of the uh, other, pri other um, goals at that level. In terms of the, um, the 1978-84 uh, um, uh, programs that uh, were initiated by uh, Deng Xiaoping, um, as uh, Tony was alluding to, uh, there was an approach that was uh, focusing on um, land reforms. That was the breaking up of the communes and the uh, redistribution of land to uh, poor households on a fairly equitable basis according to family size and needs. Um, in addition, um, uh, very central to it all was the establishment of um, the household responsibility system. And this involved a combination of um, limit, more limited uh, uh, direction of uh, rural crops, um, to uh, urban needs uh, on the basis of quotas that were established for the households, uh, and then any surplus um, food commodities that they could raise over and beyond the uh, quota restrictions that they had with the government under the household responsibility system, that could all be channeled at um, uh, their will. And it provided uh, a, a huge incentive um, for them to increase output and take advantage of uh, higher um, market prices for commodities at the local level there. Uh, and there were price reforms that were part of this. The, under the responsibility system, the government was increasing the, price, the purchase price of agricultural commodities uh, provided to the state. But in the rural markets, the uh, um, prices were even higher. But the, the net effect of it all was that um, uh, during this period, this short period of about five years, um, family incomes uh, more than doubled and um, poverty numbers of people in poverty halved. Um, I want to then uh, now talk to a little bit more about the 8-7 poverty elimination plan. The uh, plan uh, had uh, fundamentally uh, three broad uh, objectives. First of all, assisting the poor households with land improvement, cash crop development, tree crops, um, livestock, improved access to offshore off farm employment opportunities, and um, uh, also accomplishing another goal that uh, was held out, and that was universal primary education and uh, preventive um, uh, and curative health care. So those were the broad outlines. And uh, in the government programs, they allocated uh, their uh, funding to uh, those um, uh, three broad purposes, and it was um, uh, broken down as follows. They uh, had a, uh, one um, program was for subsidized loans, a second was food for work schemes, and a third was uh, grants. The 
um, uh, food for work schemes were fundamentally uh, surplus labor being mobilized to um, work on uh, rural roads, water supply, power, and other such uh, infrastructural needs supporting the regional development. The uh, grants were uh, particularly used to finance uh, investments in education and, um, and health uh, facilities. And the biggest uh, category was uh, subsidized loans. Now the subsidized loans um, it, uh, on paper was uh, intended to be uh, primarily for uh, targeting of poor households. Um, having said that, um, uh, in practice, what happened, and in uh, early uh, 1978, there was a high-level poverty reduction meeting at the, at, at the senior government and uh, party levels. Um, they decided that because uh, money was not sufficiently targeted towards the, um, towards the uh, poor households, that they, they decided that uh, um, 70 percent of uh, small loans should be targeting the households. In fact, they never uh, got as far as 50 percent. And uh, for the reasons I was mentioning earlier, at the local level, there were other priorities that were important. And what it was was a channeling of much of that money coming under subsidized loans to support um, uh, enterprises, the TVEs, township and village enterprises, as well as other state-owned enterprises, um, uh, secondary, other secondary and tertiary industries that were uh, encouraged, trading uh, um, centers and things of that sort. Um, and richer farmers also did get some of the money. But money, uh, the subsidized loans uh, did not channel into the um, hands of poor households anywhere near uh, the level that it was anticipated. There were um, several uh, um, interest interesting um, innovations in the uh, 8-7 program that were intended to facilitate targeting. And uh, there was a growing feeling in Beijing that targeting of the needs of poor households was very important. And uh, there were um, uh, special uh, programs that were uh, established to encourage that. The first uh, was the Five Ones conceptual framework for um, um, household development. And what you can see here is a formula that tries to look holistically at the household, what uh, it needs to uh, develop in order to achieve greater income and food security. As you can see there, one unit of food crops, one unit of cash crops, additional livestock, uh, one sideline activity, uh, one uh, off-farm uh, job for the family, and uh, increasingly also as time went on, <clears throat> they were also looking at what more could be done to uh, uh, ensure that uh, there, there was an environmentally sustainable approach to um, 
household uh, development. Um, what uh, the second uh, dimension of the uh, targeting uh, that was um, um, thought through and uh, is I, I don't think anybody really knows to what extent it was actually implemented, but I certainly in my own travels in in Gansu in um, in uh, Ganza Prefecture and uh, and in the uh, TAR, I did see uh, examples of this. The um, contractual uh, uh, arrangement between um, the household, the poor household, and some government official at the um, local government level, and also, in some respects, uh, party local party leaders as well. The idea was that um, there would be a contract for getting the household out of poverty in uh, three to five years. Party A, the, uh, the, uh, the household, would agree on the one hand to um, uh, take good care of his tools. Uh, the family would practice uh, the family planning policies. They'd follow the family planning policies. Uh, they would um, try to identify uh, what types of additional needs there were in the way of animals, seed, fertilizers, and other requirements in order to achieve the uh, five ones strategy that I just mentioned. Then um, Party B, uh, the government official, comes into the arrangement. He's helping to work out this plan with um, the uh, household and um, he is uh, committing himself over time to help with the implementation, uh, making sure that the household gets access to the, the seed, the, the livestock, and uh, other requirements. But he does something else very important. He guarantees a loan. And uh, that uh, uh, was critical in terms of the implementing of the, uh, of the, of the contractual plan arrangement. Um, if uh, for any reason uh, that um, plan uh, was not successfully implemented, if the farmer and his household could not uh, repay the loan, that then came out of that local government official's pocket. And so it provided tremendous incentive for the local um, officials to get that family out of poverty. And uh, um, um, the um, plan, as I say, was not uh, universally followed everywhere. It was extensive, but I would say that um, um, not enough so that uh, it was uh, really notable that this was a, uh, an important strategy uh, from the standpoint of um, uh, international organizations like the World Bank that evaluated this program in some depth. They never gave uh, much credibility to uh, the um, impact of household planning on overall poverty reduction. And then, of course, the other dimension is that um, many rural families are um, increasingly uh, virtually unable to uh, uh, implement a plan of this sort. 
there is a uh, increasing feminization process going on in the rural areas. Women are more and more taking responsibility as men go off on migration and uh, jobs in the in, in the in the more eastern areas. Uh, uh, many of the households also are are um, characterized by more elderly people. So there is a question about um, whether um, households have the capacity, many of them, to actually get themselves out of poverty. Well, this uh, suggests there should be some kind of uh, an alternative arrangement for those people, and I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that later. What, looking at it uh, once again in the overall, um, the uh, total cost of the 8-7 program was about 13.6 uh, billion renminbi. Um, poor counties uh, who were benefiting from the, the rural growth strategy uh, generally um, managed to increase their um, average growth in grain and agricultural production above the norms around them. So it did have a growth uh, impact, this program. Um, and uh, in that sense, uh, the main beneficiaries were actually um, in the, um, the richer farmers and the uh, people in the enterprises and in the so-called urban sector, urban rural sector, um, engaged in enterprises and uh, other such activities. Um, the, as I say, the uh, household targeting was, uh, benefits were more limited and um, affected by uh, unfair exclusion and undeserved uh, inclusion problems as well. These uh, factors have been uh, studied um, uh, and in terms of the exclusion factors, we're talking about um, certain groups, um, including the f many farmers, not getting adequate access to credit and uh, other uh, resources, undeserved inclu inclusion, um, richer farmers getting benefits, and um, in the um, urban sector, people getting benefits that uh, should have been allocated to the household sector. So those kinds of problems were all there. Um, I'd like to just mention um, very briefly, the DBAO system, which is a urban, or an urban a minimum livelihood guarantee program that uh, has been going on since about the year 2000 in urban areas. And it is a safety net type program that uh, provides a uh, certain uh, level, a floor, 400 uh, renminbi uh, per person per month for those that fit under a certain poverty threshold. Um, there is then a cash transfer uh, um, that is uh, based on, on the uh, local arrangements. It's means tested uh, in order to try to identify concretely who is and who is not below the poverty threshold, uh, although that has brought a lot of dispute uh, itself. And uh, this program has uh, gone on. Uh, it's popular. 
uh, in uh, 2011, there were over, over 70 million families benefiting under the program. It's now uh, being um, further uh, uh, pushed out into certain rural areas, although working the program in, in more rural areas runs into other problems where um, uh, people uh, may not uh, um, belong, they may belong to a rural uh, hukou system and not qualify for that reason, or they, um, uh, they may um, be migrants and not, um, and, and for other reasons, not qualify. But nevertheless, this is an important program. It's a safety net program. It's helpful. One of the main criticisms of it is that it uh, pro provides no incentive to those receiving it to try to work their way above the poverty line. In other words, um, it does not give incentives towards greater uh, self-reliance of the people that benefit under the program. So in that sense, uh, one has to look at the limitations of the program and uh, recognize that um, uh, somehow uh, that issue needs to be addressed. This is an important program because uh, at the national level, the poverty, uh, rural poverty reduction strategy also is looking very clearly at um, increasing rural to urban migration as the sol solution to the rural poverty problem. And if that's the case, it suggests that uh, many people coming into the more urban areas aren't going to be finding jobs very readily. And uh, they may be uh, the first that would need such a program as this one. I wanted to just uh, touch upon uh, another program uh, in Brazil. The, um, this is the Bolsa Familia program in Brazil that got established around, uh, around uh, 15 years ago. It is a program uh, that um, uh, is a cash transfer to families uh, who are under uh, the, um, the bottom 25% uh, of the population. And they get a, a monthly um, allocation depending on the uh, students who are kept in school up through uh, age 17 students who are uh, provided with vaccinations and uh, where there's a pregnant woman, uh, she is getting proper uh, and continuing um, maternal health care. So if women and the families can qualify on, under those circumstances, they can get a uh, transfer of a certain amount of money per month. And um, as shown here, some 14 million families are uh, regular beneficiaries under the program. And uh, extreme poverty has been reduced from 9.7% to 4.3% uh, of the population. That is very important because uh, what's happening with this program is that uh, it's skewing um, the income uh, inequalities back uh, to uh, the more rural families um, who are benefiting under this program. And I, I mention this program too because I think the concepts involved may have uh, some benefits for rural, targeted rural poverty reduction in uh, Chinese areas as well.
Um, I'd now like to um, talk a little bit about uh, what our own organization has been doing since uh, 1998. Um, we set up the program at that time. It was done in close cooperation with local government in uh, the Tibet Autonomous Region. Uh, the program was to uh, be guided primarily by concepts of the five ones strategy for family um, uh, uh, poverty reduction. Um, and we worked extremely closely with uh, local government. Um, this is an approach that um, uh, we at the United Nations uh, had always practiced in our programs in China. National execution is important because it, it puts in the hands of the government to determine what is to be done under the aid program. It then um, uh, goes on to uh, have a major role for the government in terms of actual implementation of the program and the donor uh, gets involved more informally uh, with advice and suggestions. And uh, this is a program that we have found in China to eliminate some of the kinds of political, insensitiv political sensitivities that have gotten uh, many programs in China under uh, difficulties. But anyway, we, we practiced this in um, the Tibet Autonomous Region too, and we found that local government officials who were um, mostly Tibetan, were there working with Tibetans in poor counties. And uh, it was a very compatible uh, relationship. In our international NGO, we had, we had about 10 Tibetan program staff. And between them, they all sort of blended into a team effort on all of our projects. So it worked pretty well. But the program, as I mentioned, is, was intended to look at what could be done in villages to boost household uh, food and income security fundamentally. It had a health dimension, which I'll mention, but um, fundamentally it was to be a, a demonstration of what could be done by the government to uh, boost income and food security and uh, get poor households out of poverty. And I'll then mention uh, a number of um, a number of activities that uh, we launch. I'll go quite quickly about them. But uh, the first was microcredit. Um, this is uh, uh, really building on the uh, earlier work that. Um, that Ford Foundation under Tony, uh, ourselves, and uh, the World Bank had done uh, back in the uh, mid-1990s to try to look at what forms of credit would be uh, most appropriate in uh, remote rural areas, knowing that uh, the government's own lending programs were not actually reaching the poorest uh, households. So this Grameen approach focusing in on women's groups, uh, uh, small groups, a larger group, uh, giving responsibility to women to plan not only what they wanted to do at their own uh, household level, but take responsibility for uh, repaying the loan. Uh, 
And um, this, um, uh, the so-called liability group guarantee system, fundamentally, uh, at any given time, if, a, if one household in a small group uh, is unable to make their quarterly repayment, then uh, others in the small group would then uh, come together and make that payment to ensure that by the end of 12 months, everybody was paid off and they qualified for another round of loans. But that's fundamentally how it went. And uh, we found that um, um, 3,000 beneficiaries over several years' time, uh, we got a 98% payback from the women. And the, so the, the women are important here, and uh, there are other reasons as well. But um, in any case, that was the main uh, focus for a lot of the uh, other activities that we also supported. I keep going backwards. Um, and there's a picture on the, on the, on the right of a woman who uh, took a loan and she created a, um, a, um, a small dry goods shop in, uh, in her village. Um, very happy woman, did well. We found that many of the women in the credit program could earn as much as 50% on their small loans. Uh, very astute, very capable, and uh, very pleased. And, uh, and the other thing we learned about the program was that uh, women who could properly manage credit very quickly uh, developed more self-confidence. They became stronger uh, uh, decision makers within their own family and, and also within their communities. So, secondly, um, greenhouses. We found that in terms of uh, uh, village level um, a food crop production, uh, particularly in the Tibetan areas where we're working at 14 or 15,000 feet, uh, they have short uh, crop seasons. They have uh, a lot of inclement weather. But in any case, by introducing uh, the um, by introducing the uh, the greenhouses. Um, they were able to uh, extend the crop period, very often enabling them to uh, double crop uh, their vegetable production. And this then uh, had um, nutritional benefits for the household. It also, in some cases, allowed households to actually sell some of their uh, green vegetables into the local market as a uh, cash supplement. We also were focused on cash crop production. And um, this uh, focused in several cases on tree crops, such as uh, walnuts, which are a hardy product, not that can uh, be marketed easily. But we also tried to look at other high value crops that uh, might uh, also generate considerable income. And we found that um, 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 herbal medicine plants uh, could uh, be uh, the answer. And uh, we found that um, uh, certain herbal medicine plants um, could generate very considerable, um, considerable income for the household. Uh, and as you can see on the left is this rhizoma 
that is a uh, medicinal herb that brought uh, very considerable um, cash income to the households. Government, local government came in and helped with the marketing and the processing of it. And um, then over on the uh, right is, uh, is, 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 is walnut production. Keep going. Um, we also uh, focused on uh, trying to expand uh, productively animal uh, 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 husbandry at the household level. And this tended to focus in on um, small animals that were highly productive, uh, reproduced quickly, um, and were valuable when sold. And, uh, and in this case, we found that uh, chickens, goats, and um, pigs were important, particularly the pigs. We uh, got involved in, um, in um, particularly in the extension of Tibetan pigs at the household level. We would um, provide uh, a pair of male and female piglets at, to a household, and uh, within one year, uh, those two piglets would, would reproduce twice and uh, produce for the household as many as 20 piglets. Uh, this then uh, served as the basis for a growing industry at the household level. They would uh, keep some pigs for, uh, re for reproductive purposes, but then also sell as many as they could. And very often they would be able to sell these pigs for um, 800 or over 1,000 renminbi uh, in the local market. So making a handsome profit, uh, that's the kind of thing we were uh, promoting. On the right um, is a case of uh, a woman with uh, uh, a chicken production. She uh, managed that whole operation by starting with a small loan. Household sideline activities. We also used the uh, credit uh, program to uh, help women particularly, but also men, to set up income generating activities that they might not have uh, done otherwise. And uh, women uh, were very often setting up weaving activities, weaving of uh, woolen cloth on looms, establishing of dry goods stores, as you saw, running of village tea houses, and doing a number of other things that uh, brought uh, income into the family. Young men uh, uh, worked through the program to uh, help in, um, for instance, getting um, carpentry, pro pro carpentry tools that could be used in uh, uh, making furniture, uh, working in households uh, on um, carpentry development activities. Um, we. Um, Saw in other cases men getting involved in barley milling on the lower left there, um, and um, uh, various activities that could generate additional income for the household. Off-farm employment through on-the-job supervised skills training was a very important dimension. I, I mentioned earlier that um, uh, a very considerable amount and a growing amount of poor household income is actually coming from uh, migrant labor out of the household into uh, more eastern uh, areas and then repatriating the funds. 
Um, but what we found also was that um, there was a great uh, 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 difficulty in qualifying unemployed uh, male and female youth to uh, uh, the kinds of jobs that would be sustainable in the longer run. We, uh, these uh, people very often didn't have more than a primary school education at best. They'd never had a job in a factory or elsewhere. They weren't accustomed to the discipline of factory or, um, or, or um, more uh, Western type employment that requires a level of discipline that uh, they just didn't have. So we developed an approach that uh, did not use um, government uh, training uh, centers the way the government tended to do. We uh, had an approach rather that was on the job apprenticeship type training on the job in uh, workshops and in factories under supervised, under supervised opinion, um, instructors. And they would then receive three to six months of training on the job and uh, they would uh, be given uh, a broader uh, training be that went beyond vocational skills training narrowly. It would include also training in behavior skills. It would also, in some cases, provide them with other skills around um, numeracy or um, literacy that might be required for their future jobs. Uh, in any case, that approach uh, went on, and we found that over 80% of our trainees were uh, securing uh, employment on a uh, sustainable basis. And I might say that this did uh, contrast uh, starkly with some of the training that went on in some of the government institutions. We, for instance, put on a training program for uh, 50 um, unemployed youth in motorcycle maintenance and repair skills. And uh, the government then uh, took our, um, our, um, uh, our materials and put on their own training using the same uh, materials, training materials in, a, uh, in the Nachu Vocational Training Center. And, but instead of 50, it was 500 people for for, 13, for 15 days rather than 50 people for, um, thir for over about four months. So that difference, uh, we think, made a difference. We think that is a demonstration that um, it is possible to uh, recruit unemployed youth, others that come from rural households, don't have the uh, skills required for immediate urban employment, and uh, proceed on that basis. But here you can see uh, women were trained in cooking skills, men were involved in learning how to repair vehicles and motorcycles. They also got involved in uh, construction skills, so they were able to get involved in housing and building construction. And um, as I say, about 80% of our trainees uh, managed to retain employment after the training. Environmental pre preservation, um, this was important. Uh, we did provide them some uh, training on the importance of preserving the environmental resources around them, but it focused in very heavily on um, stoves, fuel-efficient wood stoves, and uh, solar hot water 
cookers the stoves were we found were able to reduce the amount of wood needed for cooking and heating by about thirty percent and in the case of the solar hot water heaters that provided hot water that could be used for mixing of animal feed it usually had a pipe that came down below the fixture into a room where men and women children could bathe clean and improve their hygiene and it also helped to reduce the amount of wood burning that went on so these were two items the stove and the hot water heater very popular in the in the in the household and in great demand we did find it very important to give attention to rural health as Bill Shaw here will quickly tell you catastrophic health problems are the number one cause of rural poverty recidivism a family a rural family that has a serious health problem very quickly falls back into very deep poverty because of the costs involved insurance helps but nevertheless what we found was that by giving stress to a preventive health care structure for the rural community they could help to provide villagers with information about how to protect themselves from communicable diseases how women should be more concerned about reproductive and maternal and child health and we all it also was used to ensure help ensure that rural villagers around health hygiene and sanitation would improve their behavior practices to help protect themselves from disease and 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 other difficulties and here you'll see a training session going on in a village this is the way the Tibetans like to be involved in rural training and everybody stands around and it's very interactive so the question is whether such practices focused at the household level can help to strengthen the capacity of households to get themselves out of poverty and to offset the the poor the pro poor effects of increasing rural income inequality and the the general message that I think is important for those involved in the implementation of Xi Jinping's program is that they should on the one hand give continued priority to rural growth increased demand for agricultural products thereby boosting income incentives on the one hand but they'll have to be looking at other ways to strengthen more targeted approaches and in that connection looking at the five ones and the contractual planning on the one hand
but also considering uh, conditional uh, cash transfers to um, see whether that can uh, be uh, useful. And then also, um, can the, um, the, uh, the, the uh, Dibao program um, uh, guarantee system um, putting uh, a um, floor on uh, rural income, is that increasingly important for the rural areas? It needs to be uh, given attention. Finally, uh, I think there's a message to Beijing, and that is that um, the um, local um, civil society institutions of NGOs, local foundations, should be more, should be encouraged to get more actively involved in uh, poverty reduction in the rural areas. What about Africa? Um, I, I think Africa, I think many leaders in, in China would agree that Africa is important. Um, China does have things to uh, show and to demonstrate to Africa, particularly the growth-oriented poverty reduction policies are important. Also, um, um, ways um, to um, uh, 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 strengthen uh, civil services, uh, ser civil country civil services, country civil services to uh, help in um, uh, providing more uh, uh, attention at the household level. Um, um, the, the situation superficially for Africa uh, looks bad. Uh, population increase from uh, 230 million to 267 million between 1962 and 2010. Uh, since 2000, economic growth has been 5.2%, but on the other hand, poverty at the same time increased from 358 million to uh, 515 million. Um, the uh, the in apparent inconsistency there is really explained by the high uh, population fertility in many countries, countries, the extent of extreme poverty and the high uh, rural urban income inequality that also uh, takes place. There are two exceptions to uh, the, the uh, somewhat um, bleak situation in Africa, and they relate to uh, policies and programs that uh, both Rwanda and Ethiopia have been implementing since uh, uh, the turn of the century. Um, both of them uh, have been pursuing, in effect, the chi China rural growth model. Um, they are, uh, secondly, um, 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 and in that sense, they're giving priority to the rural smallholder sector, trying to promote um, agricultural um, demand for their products and uh, providing them ki the kinds of um, uh, seed and other materials uh, important for them to expand their uh, agricultural uh, activities focused on food products, not cash crops. And um, uh, they, bo they both are implementing um, family planning policies and they've had um, fairly good results with them. They both give a high priority to education, and they have strong um, um, civil service systems. One can control 
uh, can, you, one can criticize some of the uh, tactics of local government. There are critics that uh, talk about human rights considerations, but the fact of the matter is they are delivering in terms of improved rural income for households. And in this little chart, you can see some of the impacts, growth rate expanding, uh, poverty rate dropping, um, primary school attendance very high, and rural um, urban inequality dropping or um, not, not extending farther. One other easy, interesting dimension of the situation in Rwanda, Rwanda is a blend of old and new administrative practices. And uh, this has, in the, at least in the Rwanda case, proved to be um, very uh, successful. And it's interesting to note it because uh, it has uh, also widespread applicability in other countries of, of Africa. But one traditional uh, practice was communities to always uh, share at least one cow for every household. Uh, that would be um, important. Then secondly, um, they had a program that uh, involved local mayors, where mayors produce uh, a, 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 a plan, development plan for their area that they are responsible for. It's worked out in some detail. It has um, uh, measurable targets included in the plan. And then um, President Paul Kagame then comes into the mayoral area to a meeting where um, the contract uh, in the um, presence of the local community is signed. And uh, uh, that then is a contractual commitment between the mayor and uh, the president. But the, the president comes back one year later to check to see how it's been done, whether the targets have been met. And if they have not, uh, very often a mayor could uh, lose his job. Finally, um, uh, can Africa benefit from China's experience? Um, probably in the first instance, uh, one would have to say that uh, other countries in, in Africa should probably first look at the situation in, uh, in Rwanda, but also perhaps uh, uh, Ethiopia, where uh, so much progress has been made in boosting smallholder rural agriculture um, income and uh, well-being. Um, secondly, they might learn from China and international experience with poor household development uh, and safety net targeting strategies. Uh, I'd like to end with that. Thank you very much. I haven't let, left you uh, much time, but I would welcome any comments and suggestions for the future. So thanks, Arthur. That covered a huge uh, range of issues, so I'm sure there might be quite a few uh, comments. Uh, there should be a microphone. Please uh, uh, use the microphone. Just let us know briefly who you are and uh, then uh, your comment or question, please.
Uh, thank you, sir. I'm Pei. I'm from Belfast Center as a visiting scholar. And uh, uh, I came from a Chinese government, NDRC. And uh, I have two questions related to the the, uh, the NGO that uh, poverty uh, reduction uh, project. The first question is what the difference the main difference between the NGO-led uh, project and the, the, the projects led by the Chinese government, including the modalities or the results or some other, why there, there are so many differences between the government-led and NGO-led? That's the first question. Second, second, second one is that uh, recently the National People's Congress uh, published, uh, uh, adopt a new law to governing the, uh, guiding the, the activities of NGO, especially international NGOs in China. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm uh, curious on what's your opinion on this law and what the potential impact to the NGO-leading lead, uh, uh, project on uh, 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 this uh, poverty reduction in China in future? Thank you. Um, perhaps what I'll do is answer the second question first. <laughs> um, there's a lot of controversy going on around about that law. And um, the law comes into effect next January, so there's a while yet. But beyond that, um, I think what is critical here is uh, within the law, but also uh, increasing practice within China. Um, lo uh, local NGOs, but particularly international NGOs like the one I was involved with, we, we had a Donway. We had, we had a government institution that we worked with and through. For the last four or five, four years, we've been working through a um, a uh, China Philanthropic Research Institute at uh, Beijing uh, Normal University. And we provided funds. We had great relationships with them. We then discussed with them what rural programs we would be continuing to support. So it was a compatible arrangement. And um, um, we, there were never disputes. We worked things out with that uh, counterpart organization. And uh, I'm told that if I want to uh, come into compliance under the new law, well, then they will get the clearance from the uh, Ministry of Public Security. I won't. They will. And if they, if they can't or won't do it, well, then that's the end. But my suspicion is that uh, that will probably be, for many international NGOs, the way to go. They, they should have a, uh, a local counterpart, uh, government counterpart, a government uh, uh, organization of some sort to work with. And uh, as long as uh, they're in compliance that way, they shouldn't have a lot of trouble. Now, it may be that a lot of uh, NGOs are trying to go directly to the Ministry of Public Security and will be having some problems. What, I think everybody agrees that the Ministry of Public Security is not now set up to manage this new responsibility. So it'll take time. And my own experience in China is that um, if you don't do anything wrong that makes anybody mad, generally they, uh, they, they shrug their shoulders and are willing to give you a certain scope and leeway. But it, they hang uh, this. Uh, noose over your head if you go wrong, of course, they quickly throw you out of the country. But if you're properly working with local uh, 
counterpart organizations. You're doing, you're consulting fully, you're getting their advice, you're working with communities that appreciate it. It should work. But having said that, um, yeah, there can be problems. Um, on the other, um, I would only say that um, probably the difference between what we were doing with the um, county and local governments in the Tibet Autonomous Region and in um, 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 Shangri-La County in, uh, in uh, Yunnan was that we were providing more money available for programs than probably they were uh, themselves uh, prepared to do on their own. So we were in a sense sort of a, uh, I, I wouldn't refer to us as sort of a, a Cadillac operation, but we were, we were appreciated. What we found in, in remote uh, township areas, for instance, um, they very much welcomed our programs because among other things, we could provide the funds to enable them to be uh, more um, uh, able to get into the villages and do things they wanted to do but couldn't finance. So um, um, I think uh, it's a question of uh, funding as much as anything. I don't think um, uh, we had many government officials, local government officials involved in all aspects of our program. They were our champions actually. So if uh, um, they had the funds to do it, well, they probably would. And this is where uh, Xi Jinping comes into play. on that there was if you look at many of the government run microfinance programs and those run that you did with UNDP or we did or others did the most of the governments unraveled and collapsed and had very low yes. payback rates so it does seem to me there's a, there's a difference in approach and i think it's also that when it's a government program, I think there's a notion that it's charity and it doesn't have to be paid back. And I think what you did with your programs, and I think you were modest in that, was you really instigated also cultural change mm -hmm. around credit and lending mm -hmm. uh, that isn't there with the government programs, which is why I think they often kind of, you know, uh, collapse quite rapidly. That's a very important point. And um, yes, the the government microfinance, the efforts they made, um, very often they were to uh, both men and women, but beyond that, um, yeah, more of a uh, feeling that this is perhaps a charity, not something that they have to uh, buy and use to their best advantage. Thank you for a great talk. Uh, my name's Nara Dillon, and I'm from the East Asian Studies um, program and I just wanted to ask you more about the Rwanda and Ethiopian programs that you were talking about. Did they have Chinese advisors and were they explicitly drawing on Chinese policies when they put these programs in place or or do you see parallels or affinities between them? Well there certainly there certainly are parallels. Um, in the case of um, Ethiopia um, they have developed a very strong relationship with China. And you see it primarily in terms of their own programs, uh, that um, China's programs in Ethiopia, and they are extensive. And I was saying a few words about the uh, 
the Western uh, development strategy because that fundamentally is the, is the heart of the Chinese strategy in Africa as well. It's, it's all focused around resources. But in the, uh, in the, China, in the China case um, with Ethiopia, it's also driven by the fact that uh, China is uh, overwhelmingly the major uh, donor there, but is also the major training, uh, trading partner. So twice as much exports go to uh, China twice as much imports come from China. There's a, um, and there's a history in, in Ethiopia of uh, a background that is quite similar in many respects to uh, what China has gone through since the Cultural Revolution. It was a Marxist government at a certain time. It, tries to, it tried to uh, collectivize agriculture. It failed. There were famines. They then shifted to a more liberal approach of, of a private sector approach and the market economy. And um, so I think from a governmental standpoint, there's quite a bit of uh, simpatico with uh, China these days. In terms of um, Rwanda, I'm not so sure, but clearly uh, they too um, there have strong leadership and have seen a, um, a China approach as more appropriate to their circumstances than the so-called Western model or the Washington consensus or whatever you want to call it from the, from the West. That's another topic all by itself. But uh, I don't want to get into that one. But um, um, the, the fact of the matter is Paul Kagame has bought into this stronger approach, strong civil service, um, an inspiration from above, communication at lowest levels, commitment to uh, smallholder well-being, so that you could imagine that uh, um, there they would be quite happy with the Chinese connection as well. It, it should be more studied, but there are important parallels in, in Rwanda as well. Of course, they uh, had their own shocking uh, history of uh, genocide that um, they've moved away from. Mr. Hoglop? I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Hoglop, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for your work there. Uh, my name is Pin. I used to work for uh, Mount Everest Later Preserve in Shikaza. Oh. You, you mentioned the, the train actually runs there in 1990s. Uh, now I'm a, I work as a lawyer in China. But anyway, my question is that last year I was there at the Mount Everest Later Preserve. Um, it's a, um, it's a government NGO. I'm sorry? Tumalangma Nature right. Preserve. Um, Mr. Puchong, who is the uh, bureau chief there, uh, he was my uh, co-worker you know, back in the 1990s, he told me that um, now all the NGOs from foreign Western countries are banned from uh, involvement in the work there. And uh, I, I, I'm aware that you are from INGO. So uh, my first question is that, is there a difference that because you are high, higher hierarchy um, than the like schools or uh, Greenpeace or whatever, those um, smaller or less significant uh, in the government's eyes. So I, my question is, that, is that a, the reason why you can still access Tibetan air, TAR or not? My second question is that many Tibetans I met in Tibet, um, I'm a Chinese, and they complained to me that we don't really need uh, Chinese government NGOs or chi Chinese government uh, aids or anything. We would rather like the foreign NGOs, if we have to have an NGO. 
And then better yet, we don't need any of this. We can have our own sufficiency and, and, and prosperity route to that. We don't need any governmental NGO. So what's your comment on that? Um, <clears throat> the um, situation in the first place in the uh, Tibet Autonomous Region is a bit different from uh, other parts of the country. And it's, in a sense, it's more sensitive than in other areas. And I'm, I'm not trying to uh, um, uh, um, uh, suggest that um, um, things should be different, but they are. Um, I'm aware that uh, in Qinghai, for instance, there still is uh, more involvement of uh, NGOs. And uh, it very often is, in, in the several instances that I know, it's very often because they have some link with uh, Beijing. Some organization in Beijing is, is there um, giving some support, some morale uh, boosting and the like. So um, it's true that the situation with NGOs in the TAR is not good at this time. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, I'm told, that, and there's also a, an, an, an NGO law that um, the NGO law itself is uh, not against civil society institutions. All it's doing is uh, laying out a, uh, an arrangement whereby um, no NGOs are sort of uh, freewheeling on their own, but they're tied in and accountable to a government uh, unit of some sort or another. And at the same time, there is the possibility of the Public Service Bureau to monitor if they wish. Now, it may be that because they're not prepared or see no intention to, they won't monitor. But um, um, I, th I think the only thing I can say is that uh, maybe uh, I have certain guanxi because of my background. I don't know. Um, but I have a good partner that I'm happy with. And uh, it's, it's staffed by people who uh, I'm comfortable with. And they seem to be comfortable with us even now. So uh, in June, um, I'm going to be having, supporting another workshop in, um, in Ganzhou Prefecture, Litang County. And um, I'll be led out there by my counterpart. And um, that'll be it. We'll do what we do. Um, so I, I don't think it's absolute. Um, and I'm not trying to be apologetic either, because it is, we're going through a difficult period. But I, I would like to think that uh, once the law is in place and operative, and the government is then focused on uh, trying to properly gear up to manage it, that uh, it won't look as uh, restrictive uh, as it does at the moment. Having said that, um, um, there is in China tremendous wealth within local foundations. And there, on the other hand, are lots and lots of NGOs that are short of funds, improperly staffed, and just plain need better uh, staffing revenues and procedures. So there's the possibility here of uh, evolution towards a stronger local NGO uh, world there. And uh, I, I can only hope that 
that's the way it goes. Thank you very much. My name is uh, Ahsan. I'm a recent alumni from Harvard and Fletcher and soon to be a PhD at Northeastern. Mm -hmm. um, my question is about, uh, in terms of the vocational trainings and employment, how do traditional gender norms play into the design process? As far as I saw from the presentation, uh, women were more uh, led to cooking or uh, similar stuff while men are more uh, pushed into like carpentry so is is gender playing a role that determining determining the design of these processes or the um, or like is there a transition between if a woman wants to go into carpentry can she do it if um, she was a woman that got a small loan through this program she could uh, purchase the tools and go do it but yes, there, there is, uh, to some extent, a tendency for women to go into uh, trades like cooking, like uh, hostels, um, hotels, um, other types of activity where they um, have been more involved traditionally. Um, and men tend to do more things like electrician, plumbing, and construction skills and the things of that sort. Um, but perhaps in um, where, um, where women are in control of the finance, I think they have more opportunity to go into types of sideline activities that uh, they wish to pursue. And there are, for instance, women in uh, Qinghai and elsewhere that are actually trying to set up small NGOs that will get involved in the health sector and um, uh, poverty reduction work. So it's perhaps in the China context, uh, no doubt there is discrimination against women, including from the government side. There's sort of a, a notion that, you know, uh, construction trade isn't where a woman should be. But on the other hand, um, uh, I should ask Tony to answer this question, but uh, I, I can imagine that as time goes on, there will be a slight uh, loosening further in terms of customary attitudes about um, professions. Yes, like in the U.S. for that matter, um, a lot of women are uh, going into education and health services and things like that. That's, that's quite true. It's similar to what we do in this country in some respects. Our teachers are preponderantly women. Our health providers are often women. Um, but um, I don't know, Tony, do you, do you think that there's a cultural factor that's going to be continuing to evolve over time in China? That's a good answer. I mean, my suspicion is that uh, if you're in more traditional rural environments, you're going to see the kind of gender play coming out into that. And it does seem to me the one area where uh, alternative approaches and views could be, I think, implicit in Asan's question is, you know, not, you know, not just presuming that if you put on a vocational training program, this one will be for women, this one will be for men, but you, sh you know, encourage uh, crossing of what is seen as traditional 
uh, gender boundaries. The other question is a huge question, which uh, is probably beyond this. But anyway, please join me in, in thanking Arthur. If other people have questions, I'm sure Arthur has a few minutes to talk to you.